Welcome to the New Books Network. We now need experienced truck drivers. Men who are willing to do a dangerous job. This job must be done before we can reopen our gates and bring back full employment to you people. The men who qualify, they will receive exceptional wages. Only experienced truck drivers willing to risk their life can do it. No one else should apply. The company will pay 8,000 pesos to each driver. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. The welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast in which two guys watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. There are a number of movies out there, and you listeners know what they are. These movies you've heard of your whole life, and you're like, yeah, someday I got to watch that. I got to get around to it. So today we're doing a movie that was on my list, and I know Mike's list forever. And eventually, because William Friedkin recently died, we said, you know, we did the French Connection. Let's give this a watch. What movie are we doing today, Mike? Sorcerer. 1977, written and directed by William Friedkin and also co-written by Walton Green. You know what else he wrote, Mike? The Wild Bunch. A great movie. Great movie, right? So we, like I said, we, we, we've been talking about William Friedkin. Everyone's been talking about him in light of his recent death. We did French Connection a couple of weeks ago. It seemed the perfect time to do this. I read uh, years ago his book, The Friedkin Connection, and I just reread the parts of it about, isn't it a great title? Yes. I just reread the parts of it about um sorcerer and there was this whole Fitzcarraldo element to making this movie not not actually in the movie although i guess driving the trucks is kind of like dragging the boat across the jungle but just like getting like they, they set the whole thing up in one place then the bridge goes dry then they got to recon like it's a great story if you like reading about how movies are made we've also done wages of fear we thought the time was right to talk about sorcerer here we are mike overall what was your take on seeing this for the first time this movie should be more famous. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I've got to put a dollar in the jar or something because I agree with Pauline Kael, who uh, famously Star Wars came out right before this movie came out. So this was supposed to be the ultimate 70s blockbuster follow up to Jaws, also starring Roy Scheider. This was supposed to be everything that a 70s movie could do. And it totally bombed based on what they spent on it. Right. They they literally went to the middle of the jungle to make this movie. Um, there's a lot of practical effects in this movie that I'm sure you'll get into. And they fought and battled. And William Friedkin said that he put so much of himself personally uh, into this movie and his personal expression of what he thought a movie could do. And then nobody went to see it. And Pauline Kael said, uh, you know, that Star Wars had made the American moviegoer uh, callow and, you know, caring about surfaces and just wanting to be entertained. And here comes this dark, disturbing psychological movie and nobody ever saw it. I, I liken it very much to to Heaven's Gate, where if you have a taste for Heaven's Gate, uh, you're in the minority category. And it's very difficult uh, to convince other people to go see it, because even if they Google it, like, let's just say that they take your advice and go home and Google it. The first thing that they're going to get is like, why you shouldn't watch this movie, why this movie bombed and why it's too long. Right. And of course, if you do like this movie, the first thing you start to do was annoy everybody at work and everybody else, you know, saying everybody. you got to watch you got to watch Sorcerer, as I did to you. Right. I said I texted you. I said, I just watched Sorcerer. You have to watch it. And Mike's response was, I will text you back in two hours and four minutes. 
I went and watched it. But yeah, why is this movie so scary? I mean, besides that, William Friedkin directed it. Like, why well, is it so scary? Well, I think let's let's compare it to Wages of Fear, right? Which which he obviously admired. He actually went and got the official blessing from Clouseau, George Clouseau, and said, I want to remake Wages of Fear. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. But he, I thought that was a great touch where Friedkin said, I just wanted to make sure I was doing this right. It wasn't trying to be cheesy or rip him off, like how much he admired Wages of Fear. Well, let's talk about it. I mean, first of all, this movie makes Wages of Fear seem like singing in the rain or something. I mean, I would rather watch Wages of Fear uh, three times alone than watch the first half an hour of Sorcerer. So, I mean, it's so funny how grim it, it's like William Friedkin was like, all right, I made the most gritty cop movie of the French Connection. Then I literally scared the entire world with what still probably is the scariest movie ever made, which is The Exorcist. And then he's like, Exorcist, not grim enough, not grim enough. We got it. We got to go a little deeper because at least in The Exorcist, they beat the devil. And but but the, I think I think the point is that he that it's still there in Sorcerer, but it's not something yes. that you can concentrate on. I I think I think this movie works so much better on that level um, than the than the Exorcist because without invoking anything directly uh, supernatural or putting a concentrated face on evil uh, that that you could focus on or try to or try to kick out, it's just somehow all around you all the time. All the time. And we'll talk about that when we get to part three and talk about the title, because that leads right into the title, right? But let's talk about the, the, you know, you said this, that it's all around you. Well, let's talk about the world they're in, right? In Wages of Fear, it strikes me that they're in this kind of terrible limbo. But the worst thing about it is that it's hot and that there's nothing to do and that the guy in the bar just wants to get you off the stoop unless you order something. And then you walk around into someplace else. Like it's, you don't want to be there. But here, I mean, this is hell. Like, how about the scene where Roy Shouter gets shaken down by the cops? Well, do you they... remember why they start shaking him down? What the joke is? They take his ID card. Yeah, and he doesn't know Spanish. Right, and what's his name supposed to be? Scanlon. Oh, no, his real name is Scanlon. What's his... It was Dominguez. D Dominguez, right? And they're, and they're all laughing at him. So yes. I think the worst thing about this limbo is... You are not who you were, and you are not who you are supposed to be. Yeah, you're like a no, you're a non-person. How about the scene with the burned bodies? We're told the wages of fear. There's a fire, but how about when they're moving those bodies off the truck? Yeah, the, I think that in wages of fear, the big move that Clouseau does is he has all the women in town crying, so they're 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 wailing, but you don't see anything. Right. And Friedkin says, "I'm going to show you just enough to torture your imagination." You know, the French banker, he has that watch. Oh, yeah. And the English subtitle said, you know, uh, presented to you in the 10th year of forever. Um, but what it actually means is the 10th year of our eternity, like our shared eternity, which it, I think that he goes from a beautiful our eternity, you know, with his wife who's giving him the watch uh, to to an evil kind of quasi damnation, our eternity in yeah. Porvenir. Because you don't need a watch in poor veneer. You're, you, what do you care what time it is? It's always the same time. Yeah, it's always the same time and it's always the wrong time. So what did you make of, of, let's talk about that for a second before they get the mission or before, if you want to talk about the setup, the parts about Elizabeth or, the, you know, how you get these four criminals together. Uh, I really enjoyed that more than Wages of Fear. So that's that's the biggest departure from the original source material, which is that Wages of Fear obeys kind of the traditional unities in starting in medias rest and so everybody's just there and then you'll figure out who they are right it's it's traditional hollywood cinema but made in france you know to show you exactly who everybody is what friedkin does though is he uses vignettes to show you and create a connection 
with who these folks are. And I, I think the kind of gambit behind the vignette is he can either show you Roy Scheider with the eternal, you know, five o'clock shadow, or he can show you him as he was in a suit in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and then show you him uh, kind of like uh, Bogey was in, in the African Queen. Totally. He's got totally the African queen look. That's awesome. Well, it's also interesting that in Wages of Fear, you have the four guys, but only one of them is the criminal. The, you know, the Joe, the Don Fanucci guy who turns out to be a coward. Here, though, all four of them are criminals. I mean, you have a hitman, a terrorist, the getaway driver, and the uh, the white-collar criminal. So his challenge, I think, is Friedkin's challenge. You said Gambit is, I'm still going to get you to care about these people. Because remember, the French guy's wife says, he says, oh, it was just a soldier, which he's translating the book. And she says, well, nobody is just one thing. And he's like, the, the Gambit is the challenge is, these four people are, are bad dudes, but I'm going to get you to be on their side and hope they can make it across a rickety bridge. Well, it makes Wages of Fear almost sentimental in a way. In, in which that some of the guys in the truck are innocent. And what he wants you to understand, Friedkin does, is that nobody that gets to poor veneer who doesn't belong there or wasn't born there is innocent. And in fact, the, all the natives know it, right? They All the natives of the city know the guys that have got here some way. And there's really only one way and one reason why you'd be here. And, and it's impossible for them once they've got there to be native. Yeah, it's hell because nobody nobody chooses to go to hell. Right. Even Dante didn't choose to. Virgil had him had to say, OK, I'm going to give you a little tour and make it make a sit up straight. But nobody chooses to be there. And that's why they all know them. And that's why it's so it's so interesting what he does there, because everything about this movie he said, why is it so scary? Like the look of it is so great, like how grim it is. And again, like how about the trucks? Like one of my things I thought these are literally monster trucks. Like doesn't that one the great of the truck look like teeth? It has a like, grin. Yeah. These are literal monster trucks. And also, I don't know if you caught this one, one of the people who auditions to be a driver is, of course, Cheech from Godfather 2. So welcome back. We always like to talk about our favorite moments in part two. Mike, what grabbed you this time? There's a scene, there's a vignette for how the Frenchman gets to poor veneer, right? They've, em they've embezzled money or they've done something that they shouldn't have done. And only this guy and his brother-in-law can get them out of it. He's he keeps asking his father-in-law, his brother-in-law's father, for money. You got to go back and see him. You got to go back and see him. The brother-in-law says saying, no. We're, we're ruined. There's no way. He, he said he wouldn't do it. You know, and and he puts so much pressure on him. So finally, he meets him secretly outside of a restaurant. His wife is inside. Uh, you know that they're eating lunch, and finally he says, "Listen, our only hope is if you get back in your car and you go see your father and you beg him to keep us both out of prison." Because there's no way, you know, keeping you out of prison keeps me out of prison. So go ahead. And as soon as he's walking in, you can hear the crunchy gravel, you know, on the on the clackety 70 shoes as he's going back in. There's a there's a gunshot and the worst possible thing has happened. And that seems to me to set the stage for the entire movie. It's it, it's it's a dramatic tension and it's a crushing tension, but it's always getting worse. Like what's the worst thing besides sneaking out of lunch? to pretend to your wife everything's okay, but you know you're going to jail later the day, it's it's the gunshot that makes something permanent, right? Up until that moment, it's always something that can be taken back, right? But the idea that underneath all that tension, something could suddenly explode, that is actually sorcerer in a hole. That's sorcerer in 30 seconds. Yeah, and that's of course because things in sorcerer happen out of the blue and they keep happening to make things worse, right? Do you remember the part where they're going across the bridge? Yeah. And the tree comes out? Like what, like how great is that tree? 
That's the scariest tree. Like I have stuff at the end, but uh, honestly, that tree is scarier than any monster in any movie I've seen. That tree has a, that tree has a mind of its own. Like you, there's movies with evil trees. It's like uh, poltergeist. poltergeist, right? There's evil trees. This tree is more evil because you don't know what's making the tree that puppet, right? It, there's plausible. There's enough plausible deniability that it's just the water that gets the tree to rake across the truck and try to scratch them in the face. But what is it really? Like, what is the animating force of evil in the universe? Well, two quick things before we get to my moment about the tree. First of all, that tree, the last time I was that affected by a jump scare in a movie was when you told me to watch Ma uh, Mahalan Drive. And there's that famous jump scare with the guy behind the diner. Like, that's up there in the Hall of Fame of jump scares. Second of all is, again, William Friedkin has, you know, the devil pop up in a bedroom and all this kind of stuff. But he's like, yeah, I could also do this with a tree. Tree is much scarier. <laughs> um, so my moment is also, it's funny, in one of the vignettes, it's when Roy Scheider and the Irish mob is going to go rob these churches during the wedding. And they're down there counting the money. And you see the wedding. And I I this just totally stuck with me. Do you remember during the wedding, Friedkin shows us what's going on. You get to see the bride and the groom. And for no apparent reason that's connected to the plot, the bride has a black eye. And, and right, did you notice that? Yes. And, and so I'm like, well, like that, like what's going on with that? Because she's not named. They never come in. It's it's just a way to like show you the world of of Elizabeth, New Jersey, I guess, that Roy Shutter is living in. And I think what's interesting about that is that in 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 the in the world of the movie, the the pre-poor veneer and the post-poor veneer, they should be two different worlds. Right. It should be like, oh, I got I want to be back in the US. I want to be back in the States because here I'm I'm in this hellish place and I'll drive the truck and do it. But I think what in this movie, more than wages of fear, those two worlds overlap, overlap a lot more because none of the places to go back to seem like they're a great bargain. It's not like you're gonna go back to paradise or something at the end. But I think that we see these two worlds kind of like bleed into each other, right? Like it's like, that's again, why make them all criminals? Why have a suicide drive the French guy to the jungle? Why have, and it's just like everything in this movie is, is, is so hopeless. And then you end up on the run, right? Because you do something stupid, like driving that car or criminal or whatever you want to call it. And then there's a twist of fate that you live and you get to walk away from the accident. Cause remember the car flips over and Roy Scheider walks away. And then you finally get your $40,000. And then of course you find out that no, you really didn't get away with anything. And then don't forget, even as Roy Scheider is driving away at the end and he's the only driver left and he's still got the nitro, he ends up in on the moon. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually know where that, but if, if you were looking for a way to visually dramatize how bleak the universe is, it looks like he he ends up, uh, I don't know, in in like a mysterious fantasy movie, just full of strange white caves. Right, you you're looking at the jungle and you think to yourself, "Man, I wish I can't wait to get out of this jungle." And you get out of this jungle into nowhere, into, into like nowhere. The, into, into the space in your own mind. We I don't actually know where he is. But that's the most, that is perhaps the most frightening scene in the movie. Yeah. And that's, of course, that's exactly where he goes. I was just about to say, he does go into his own head because that's when you get all the flashbacks, those nanosecond flashbacks, which of course are just like the devil's face in the exorcist. He loves to do that. You get those quick flashbacks, you get the voices, all these things that now to us 
in the language of movies might make an eye roll, like having voiceovers and all that. They work so well there because he, he's gone so far into his own head. We did Wages of Fear. One of the things you said was that the challenge of Wages of Fear is that we don't pay attention to driving when we drive. We do things automatically, right? But what if you had to pay attention to every nanosecond behind the wheel and you couldn't listen to the radio and you couldn't talk on your cell phone? You just had to pay attention to driving. And if you lost your, if you, if you wandered, mentally for three seconds you could die right what would the toll be and that's exactly what the toll well, was on him at the end nominally you would be a human driving but you <laughs> right. wouldn't be able to do that any you, you wouldn't be able to do any of the things that humans do but in in the six inches in their own skull so right. w- what would you you'd be a zombie yeah you'd have to be in your own skull for 218 miles of hard driving and th- that is not a fun place to be and while we're at it while we're talking about the hard driving can we just talk about this fact that when they're on that suspension bridge and like the great set piece of the movie which is like just so unbelievable right um you totally forget or at least i did that there's even nitroglycerin in the truck just driving the truck across the bridge is harrowing enough we actually have not mentioned it until just now. And again, if it follows the movie rule that no suspension bridge can be trustworthy in a movie. There's no good suspension bridges in any movie. I'm thinking about the man who would be king. I'm thinking about uh, I don't know. I don't know which Indiana Jones it is, but there's one. Yeah, they're never they're never ever good. Welcome back. In part three, we always talk about the title and the ending. This one we have to talk about both. So, Mike, start us off wherever you want. Sure. I, I mean. Obviously, Friedkin is most famous for a movie that puts a real face on evil. Like some some people won't actually watch that movie because the the evil is too real and too concentrated. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make for good viewing or good repeated viewing. I think that what this movie does really well is it dramatizes a kind of spiritual warfare where everything's coming at you all at once you know it's against you but you can't necessarily put your finger on where it's going to come from right it 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 it, the 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 acute direction of the nature of evil is uncertain it's if you're trying to fight the water in front of you the tree will come from the side it's whatever side you're least prepared for is where it comes from it's it's not a name it's not a little girl it's not it's not any of the the actual it's it's evil stripped of all the occult but made diffuse so that you couldn't find it again and that that's in the nature of human evil that that gets them to poor veneer that's in the nature of human evil that's in poor veneer um guys willing to kill each other for jobs corrupt officials charred bodies that's in um I think one thing that Friedkin likes to do, it's almost lyrical, where if he gets a good shot, he'll return to the shot, right? It, there's an enormous fireball, right? That's just conjured up from a yeah. hole in the ground. And he'll go to that fireball five or six times whenever he feels it's appropriate or really whenever he wants to, right? When when he wants to put the label on evil and make sure you know this is evil. Welcome to hell. The, here's the fire coming up from the ground, right? Um, as though summoned. And I think that by focusing less on the source of the evil and more on the experience of what spiritual warfare is like he really succeeds where some of his earlier work not not necessarily fails but he makes a much more watchable movie because this movie is as watchable as any of the hollywood movies that were made in the late 90s like to me you can watch this movie 
it's as watchable as like the Shawshank Redemption or something, which certain certain networks just play on a loop um, because it's it's intriguing and it's dramatic uh, and it's painful in an entertaining way. But it is shockingly scary. And if you've ever had one of these harrowing experiences where just one thing keeps coming after you after another and you know they're related, but you can't see what's doing it to you, it's 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 exactly the experience of fighting blind. Yeah, because in The Exorcist, that's a great point. The Exorcist, that's what the title, I mean, you have to exercise the evil and the evil's been located, right? It's here, it's in Georgetown, it's on the second floor of this apartment. You have to go in there and get rid of it. But here, there's this terrible like miasma of dread and of evil everywhere and you just can't locate it, right? Like a sorcerer doesn't pop out and a magician doesn't pop out. And there's no scene where like Roy Scheider visits someone in the village and they 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 show his tarot cards or something and say, you are cursed. I mean, yeah, he is cursed. So is everybody else. So are you. So am I. The absolute sense of dread that comes, it, it, it's, you, you can't pin it down. And that's what makes this movie so, so terrifying. And it's more absolute than if you saw the source of it. This, this is like the Wicked Witch trying to stop Dorothy uh, from getting where she's going. But you never saw her. It's just like if you only saw poppies and flying monkeys, you know, and storms and stuff. Yeah this that's what the movie would be but it's scarier because you can't put your finger on who's doing it and you reminded me of this just now earlier you mentioned the tree in poltergeist do you happen to remember why the house is haunted in poltergeist no it's because and you'll start laughing when i remind you of this they built the housing development over a, a graveyard remember and they moved the headstones but not the bodies. But not the bodies. So Craig T. Nelson's like, you moved the headstones, but you didn't move them. So of course, well, now we know. That's why the house is haunted. It's because it's on this real estate. And of course, the, the people, the dead people are angry. Wouldn't you be? Okay, case closed, right? But here, every in the world of this movie, every house is built upon a cemetery. Everyone is trying to whistle past the graveyard, but the tune doesn't take. Okay, so so much for the name, right? There, There's a nebulous... There's a nebulous sorcerer. The title teases at it. It never revealed. It's the word that's written on one of the trucks. So ostensibly, right, is it just the truck? Or is it the source of nebulous supernatural evil that attacks everybody all the time and sends them to their to their damnation? So so much for the title. What do you make of the ending or the key takeaways? Well, the ending goes right with the title. So when we did The Wages of Fear, we talked about the last thing you see in The Wages of Fear, which is what? Finn. Been right? and about the finality of that. He's lying there. He's got the ticket. So when this movie, you're watching this movie, which is the 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 homage to it. Everything kind of goes along. The second truck blows up. Just like in, just you know, a lot of stuff happens. They don't have to blow up a rock this time. They have to blow up a tree. So you get those moments. So you get back to the end. Roy Scheider gets his check for forty thousand dollars. He's the only survivor. He says, "I wanted cash. You're supposed to give me cash." You're like, no, no, the check will clear. The the equivalent of O'Brien from Wages of Fear says, "I might go with you. I might get out of here." And then we see the woman scrubbing the floor. Now that, of course, is an homage to the original, right? Where where Clouseau's actual wife was scrubbing the floor in there. And he walks up to her and says, uh, can I have this dance? And I will admit, I'm not proud. I will admit for a nanosecond, I, I was like, wait a minute. Like, I stopped the movie. Like, that is far too sentimental for this movie. I'm like, the cops are going to come get him. The guerrilla fighters are going to come get him. Like, it's going to happen during, like, there's no way he is going to dance when the credits roll on. I, I'm going to flip the TV over. And then, of course, 
the two guys from Elizabeth, New Jersey show up and I put my hand over my mouth. I mean, that is the sorcerer at work, right? That's the perfect ending. That's, perfect. That's fate showing up exactly when it's supposed to, because I think they're waiting for the plane for two hours or something. Yeah. You know, and, and they just happen to pull up in the cab. It's taken them that long to track him down, but there's no places uh, to the end of the world that he can hide that they won't come for him. And it's great because you almost wish he would say before they shoot him, like, you couldn't have found me before I got in the truck. <laughs> you couldn't have just found me then. Because that would seem like a mercy. Right, exactly. Like, now you're going to find this now? Watch the movie. Now, I told you before about Friedkin's book, and Friedkin, he loved giving interviews. And I want to I want to read you something and get your reaction to this. And this is what he said about the title. He said, the sorcerer, this is him talking, the sorcerer is an evil wizard. And in this case, the evil wizard is fate. It's more a film about fate and about the mystery of fate. The fact that somebody could walk out their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something falling through the roof or something. And the idea that we don't really have control over our own fates, neither our births nor our deaths. It's something that has haunted me since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like it. It's very much like the tree, right? It's, it's impossible to impart either malice or chance because it's 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 like a 50-50 split, right? Is it the river just moves the tree around, the tree doesn't get to choose where it's going, or is right. that that the the tree's on the attack? Yeah. Right. And each of these, right, each of these people gets to pour veneer by doing something, right? That everybody's a tree on somebody's truck. Right? Because don't just think about the Frenchman, right? Think about his wife, right? And you're in the 10th year of your marriage and you're super in love and you think everything's fine, and behind the scenes. Right. By no fault of your own, there's been, you know, embezzlement, greed, lies, your brother's dead, right? All because some force has acted upon you. And so, you know, on the one hand, the Frenchman is is one of the guys getting attacked by the tree. And on the other hand, he is the tree. And so unless you're going to be very, very selective about how you look at specific scenes or pull them out of the hole to try to understand them. Um, there it there's there's very little comprehension in the universe and i think that yeah. that's really what this is about yeah because the word sorcerer you know has a different connotation than magician right or ma like sorcery implies some kind of like dark magic or you know what i mean there there's some there's something conjured up and once it's conjured up it's like yeah. it's right it's like the oil out of the ground in one form it's very valuable it's it's very wonderful but if the wrong thing happens it's an enormous fireball that burns forever yeah. And and think of that scene when they're driving and the um like that they pass by that family of like indigenous, you know, people and, and the guy keeps like laughing and giggling and showing up at his mirrors. I mean, that is the sorcerer kind of teasing them along, don't you think? It seems like playfully he's gonna jump on the truck. Right. And what happens if he jumps jumps on the truck uh is they're all gonna be dead. And so right, so he's there playing his games, he's teasing them, you know, playing along with them. Um, but he's an inch from death and doesn't know it. Yeah. As are all of us. I mean, that's right. Not to, not to put a big uh, buzzkill ending on the episode, but of course that's what happens because I want to finish with another quote from that same interview Friedkin said about sorcerer. Here's what he said. This is him talking. One of the themes of sorcerer is that no matter how much you struggle, you get blown up. Fate is waiting around the corner to kick you in the ass. And you mentioned it before, like, what's an example of sorcerer at work? Okay, I'm William Friedkin. 
I made a movie called The Boys in the Band that got some play. Then I made The French Connection in 71, top of the world, right? Then I make The Exorcist. I make the biggest movie of the biggest bestseller. I, I'm, I become world famous. Now my next movie's coming out. I am at the top, but then this movie by a little known director, George Lucas comes out, you know, right at the same time as my, talk about, talk about the sorcerer at work to knock you down a few pegs. And the sorcerer is always out there, Mike. Well, thanks for listening. We hope you've been cheered up by our conversation about the laugh a minute sorcerer. You could follow us on Twitter, or I guess it's now X, another move of the sorcerer at one five MIN film. You can follow us where else, Mike? Letterboxd. Follow us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch next. We love discovering new movies. Like as a PS, Mike, how great is it watching a movie that you've been hearing about your whole life and then you watch it and it really is that great? Uh, I'm, I'm so relieved that it's good. I think I'm more relieved than I am excited. 